Remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? I don't think he saw very much actual fruit from his ministry, but he was still faithful. God said, go. He said, I'm a child. I can't speak for you. God said, I formed you in the womb for this purpose, Jeremiah. You go and let me care about the results. Amen. He said the same thing to Moses. Moses said, I can't speak for you, Lord. I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since. Thou hast spoke to thy servant. And he said, I made your mouth, Moses. Therefore, go, and I will tell you what to say. He said to this very Abram, go, and I will show you where you're going. See, most of us say, show me where I'm going, Lord, and then I'll go. He says, go, and then. That's one of God's favorite things to say. Go and then. The impatience of Abram. If you're taking notes, and I will, ha- I will have three points, and we'll go through them one by one. But before we do that, let me read this short passage. In Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 11 reads, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Uh, for the blessing of being able to preach and teach your word and also to learn from it. Lord, I pray that for us all, myself included, that this would be a profitable time in the word of God and that we would go from this place, changed people from who we are right now. We pray this in Jesus' name and through the Holy Spirit in whose power we can only rest. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as we come to Genesis chapter 16, we come to a situation with, if you are honest with yourself, you and I are very familiar, and that is impatience. Um, It's always interesting as a kid, um, or even as an adult, but especially as a kid, when you're waiting for something like Christmas to happen. You know, I started thinking about Christmas when I was a kid in October. October 25th, I would start listening to Christmas music. Much to the chagrin of the other people in my family. I'm a little bit more restrained now. I wait until at least November 1st. But the fact of the matter is, when I was a kid, I was really impatient for Christmas. I always wanted to open those presents always made really long Christmas lists of all the stuff that I wanted, and I was excited to see which which things would appear under the tree, as if by magic, 
not understanding how economics works as a kid. Um, but I remember that kind of impatience. And as, as you grow older, you're impatient for other things. You may be impatient for Christmas break as a college student, or you may be impatient to get your degree, or you may be impatient to get that dream job that you wanted for so long. Or, as with me, there are periods of my life where I am impatient for a life partner. That is still something I'm praying for. And I go through periods where I am extremely lonely and I have um, extreme difficulty dealing with the fact that I am still single. Although I know that God has a plan. So I ask that you would continue to pray for me in that area of my life. But particularly the holidays are a really difficult time for me in that regard. And I have to fight depression. But all that to say, we all have things that we are impatient about. And sometimes God reveals to us a big vision for what he wants to do in our lives. And we want to see all the details of how that will work out. And we have a situation here where God told Abraham 11 years ago, at the time of this passage, you are going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham's sitting here 11 years later, not having had a single child, wondering how in the world I'm going, am I going to be the father of a great nation? And so that is the context upon which we open our text today. I just want to remind you that I have some cross-references throughout the message today, so if you can be ready to look them up and share them with us if you are a gentleman, I would appreciate it. It accomplishes two things. Number one, it keeps you awake. And number two, it allows me not to have to turn in my Bible quite so much. But let's read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 16, 1 through 5. Um, Sarai and Abram try to help God out. May I just remind you, as I have learned in my life, and as many people have learned in their lives, that when you try to help God out, 100% of the time, you fail. God doesn't need help. God needs us to surrender to Him. But let's read these first five verses. Now Sarai... Abram's wife bare him no children, and she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, going on to my maid, it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid the Egyptian, after Hagar, her, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she, was con- she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abraham, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived... I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. Now I want you to notice 
a couple of things here. First of all, we see the problem. In verse 1 it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. Now I, I find it very interesting that there was a great cultural significance back in this day to having children. As a matter of fact, when Abram went down to Egypt and said, she is not my wife, she is my sister, how did God punish the Pharaoh? Does anybody remember? He made the whole household from the lowest servant to the highest official, made the whole household barren. He closed up the wombs of the household of Pharaoh. And then he went to Pharaoh and he said, do not touch Sarah for she is Abram's wife. And many scholars believe that that is how Hagar came into the household of Abram because he received great treasures from the Pharaoh. Because the Pharaoh's like, if I give him these gifts, I can appease the gods. And he says, get out of here, Abram. Take all that you want. And among these was probably Hagar, this Egyptian handmaid. And so she was waiting hand and foot on Sarai. That is the connotation. And Sarai gets this idea because apparently culturally, again, it was acceptable for a barren woman to have a baby by another woman who was fertile, who was her servant. As long as she caught the baby when it was born, it was counted as hers. So this was man's attempt to fulfill the promise of God. God told Abram, you're going to have a child. And they said, well, clearly, Sarai's still barren. How can we help God out? And we will see how that actually worked out. And it was not well, I can tell you that right now. So we have this situation where it's interesting, Sarai acknowledges that the Lord is the one that restrained her from bearing. It wasn't Abram. And we know, in fact, that after Sarah died, Abram had six more children. So fertility was not a problem with Abram. This was clearly a problem with Sarah. And she says, the Lord restrained me from bearing. So she says, go into my handmaid. And she thinks my problem will be solved. And then Abram listened to his wife. And it was pointed out in one of the things that I studied as I was preparing for this message, that this phrase is very similar to the phrase we find in Genesis chapter 3, where it says, Adam hearkened unto Eve and did eat of the fruit. And of course, we know the result of that was that Sin fell on all men, and God had to orchestrate his great redemption plan that he actually told them in the Garden of Eden that the serpent would be trampled underfoot of Jesus. And truly, that is the case. We are here today because we serve a risen Savior who has overcome sin. So this is the situation. So Sarah gives 
Abram, Hagar to wife. And he goes in unto her and she conceived. And when she conceived, she despised Sarai. Why did she despise Sarai? Because she realized, now I am the chief woman of the house. I have given Abram something that Sarai could not. And so she despised her mistress and said, I'm better than you are, essentially. That's what's going on here. And then Sarai said unto Abraham, My wrong be upon thee. So does Sarai take personal responsibility for any of this? No, she does not. She says, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. Now it's interesting, she brings the Lord in when she talks about her problem. She says, the Lord gave me a problem. She brings the Lord in there. She brings the Lord in when she says that Abram caused her a problem. She brings the Lord in there, but she never cries out to the Lord for a solution in this passage. I think that's a lesson to us. We need to cry out to the Lord for solutions for our problem. What does the book of James say? It says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not. But if he ask, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a ship on the sea. So we're told what? To ask in faith, and to ask nothing wavering. So, this situation which they thought was going to solve a problem is about to unleash a myriad of problems. Problems that we are actually still experiencing to this day with the unrest that is in the Middle East, but also problems that God will put to right one day when he sends Jesus to set his feet on this earth. What a wonderful thought it is to realize that Jesus is coming back in bodily form. And the Bible says that I will look on him who I have pierced. Isn't it interesting to know that Jesus didn't just decide to inhabit his human body for 33 years and call it good? He decided that for all eternity, he's going to inhabit that body because he loves us. What a wonderful privilege it is to know that. So as we continue to um, think about this idea of God trusting God and His promises, let us look at, by way of cross-references, Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. So this is the first mention that he's going to make Abram a great nation. Again, no kids, no descendants at this point, but this is the promise that he made to Abram. And then just another passage about the control that God has in every situation. Genesis 31 and 2. 
Genesis 30, verses 1 and 2. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? That's about as matter-of-fact as you can get. Jacob says, Am I in God's place? Can I just give you children as much as I want to? Can I just give you children? I I know a, a couple families right now that would really like to have a child. And, and that's why it really grieves my heart when I see so many people who are opposed to God who are trying everything they can to make it codified into the laws of our land to destroy the unborn. To destroy the future. God said in Deuteronomy, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Shame upon America for taking that cavalier view of human life. But this is what God is saying here. I am in control. I have a plan. And I need you to trust me. Remember, Samuel's mother Hannah cried out to God. And it's a shame to Eli that he thought she was drunk. But she said, I... I cried out to God and made petition to Him because I desire a child. And Eli said, The Lord grant your petition. Go in peace. And then what happened a few years later? Hannah goes to the temple with the young Samuel, four or five years old, and he said, she said, The Lord granted my petition. And because... I promised Samuel to the Lord. I present him to you now. And the Bible says she had four more children after that. But God had a plan. And because Samuel came on the scene, he became a great prophet of God. God had a plan. And God will often give us impossible Odds, impossible circumstances. Then he will do through us the impossible so that when it happens, he alone gets the credit. Because he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. And I have seen that play out in my life. A television program preceding the 1988 Winter Olympics featured blind skiers being trained for slalom skiing. Impossible as that sounds. Paired with sighted skiers, the blind skiers were taught on the flats how to make right and left turns. When this was mastered, they were taken to the slalom slope where their sighted partners skied beside them shouting, Left and Right! As they obeyed the commands, they were able to negotiate the course 
and cross the finish line, depending solely on the sighted skier's word. It was either complete trust or catastrophe. Well, wait, what a vivid picture of the Christian life. In this world, we are, we are in reality blind about what course to take. We must rely solely on the word of the only one who is truly sighted, God himself. His word gives us the direction we need to finish the course. And that is from Robert W. Sutton. The second point that I have today is the ripple effect of this decision. The ripple effect of this decision. Let's look back at our text to Genesis 16, 6 to 10. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by the fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence comest thou? And whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return unto thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And I just want to point out here, first of all, Sarai decides, I am mad at Abram and Hagar, and I'm going to take it out and I'm going to be harsh to her. Notice this is the same couple that we just read about in Hebrews chapter 11 who had faith in God, but their faith is wavering. They're, they're working from their own flesh instead of trusting God, and this is the result. And so Abram again uh, ex- um, gives his wife, gives in to her and says, do what you need to do. And so she deals hardly and Hagar flees. And this is actually the first mention in verse 7 of the angel of the Lord. Now, my understanding of the angel of the Lord from my study is that it is appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. Why do I say that? Because when the angel of the Lord visits Joshua before they go in to take the land, he says, he appears to him and he says, whose side are you on, ours or our enemies, that I may know? And he says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, as the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts, am I come? And Joshua bows his knee and the angel of the Lord never says, get up off your knee. He accepts the worship. Who is the only one who will accept our worship? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's significant to me that the angel of the Lord appears to someone who is from a pagan nation who does not know the Lord, but he appears to her. 
And it's the first such appearance. Because he will appear to Abram later, but he has not yet done so. I'm reminded of how when Jesus said, I found... I've never found such great faith. He's not talking about an Israelite. He's talking about a Gentile, a Roman centurion who says, just say the word and my daughter will be healed. What a, what a wonderful reminder of the grace and mercy of God. So he found her in the wilderness by the fountain in the way of Shur. And he calls her by name, too. He doesn't say, random woman, what are you doing? He says, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Just in case she thought maybe he was talking to another Hagar. I don't know how many were in the phone book back then. But he makes it very clear. Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence comest thou and whither are you going? Notice how he doesn't ask her yes or no questions. He wants to draw out of her her situation. I love that about Jesus. Jesus was not about the yes or no question. He wanted to draw out of his followers a relationship. He wanted to hear the things that were on their heart. And so he tells her that his son is going to be a great nation. That Ishmael as well is going to have 12 tribes come out of him. And he says here, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And this is a great promise, but it's not the great promise. The great promise is still coming and will be fulfilled to Abram. God can bring beauty from ashes, but it doesn't mean that the ashes didn't exist. And I I think the encouragement in this story is that as much as we as people try to mess up the plan of God, it is impossible for us to do so. Because God is faithful. Think of all the times through the years when people tried to destroy the Bible, the Word of God. And I was watching a History Channel special just a couple weeks ago and it was still ranked by them, a secular TV show, as the most influential thing to be created in the history of the United States. It's still the best-selling book of all time. Yes, it is much maligned. Yes, it is much misquoted. Yes, it is much misinterpreted. But the Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Because it's true. Because truth will prevail. What did Jesus say? And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Can we look at, by way of cross-reference, 1 Peter 2.18, 1 Peter 2.18.
Peter 2.18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the hard. Remember we read here that the angel of the Lord said, said to her, in verse 9, the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hand. He didn't say, I'm going to take you out of that situation. He said, I will be with you through that situation. My promises will be with you through that situation. But you need to submit yourself unto her hands. I'm sure that's not the answer she was looking for. She was probably thinking, well, if you could strike Sarah down with death or at least severe illness, that would be great, Lord. But that's not what God says. He says, submit to her. Proverbs 15, 3. Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Isn't it good to know that the eyes of the Lord are in every place? Sometimes it gets discouraging and you don't feel like God sees you. I know for me, sometimes I ask myself, am I really making a difference? Am I really doing that which God has laid out for me? And then he reminds me, yes, you are. See, sometimes we think that if we do what God asks us to do, then everything will will work out so great. And we have our own definition of what working out so great would be. When I surrendered to full-time ministry a year or so after I got out of college, I thought, well, that means I'm going to be preaching 45 Sundays a year. It means I'm going to have this massive social media following my my podcast is going to go viral and I'm going to have 500 listeners a week and people are always going to be talking about what I'm talking about and complaining about what I say and I'm going to just be able to like hold court with thousands of people. But that's not what God said. He said he who is faithful in little things will be faithful also in much. And whether I reach one person with the gospel or whether I reach 500 people with the gospel, that's God's decision. Remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I don't think he saw very much actual fruit from his ministry, but he was still faithful. God said, go. He said, I'm a child. I can't speak for you. God said, I formed you in the womb for this purpose, Jeremiah. You go. And let me care about the results. Amen. He said the same thing to Moses. Moses said, I can't speak for you, Lord. I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since. Thou hast spoke to thy servant. And he said, I made your mouth, Moses. Therefore, go, and I will tell you what to say. He said to this very Abram, go, and I will show you where you're going. See, most of us say, show me where I'm going, Lord, and then I'll go. He says, go, and then. That's one of God's favorite things to say. Go and then. And as people, we are very detail-oriented. And we're like, hey God, if you could just give us a map and show us the end part, 
then it would be better. I always, I always say, if God could just shine a spotlight on wherever it is he wants me to go next, that would be great. But he says to me, one step at a time, one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time. The, the hymn says, moment by moment, I am kept in his love. Moment by moment, I have joy from above. Moment by moment, till glory to the shine. Moment by moment, dear Lord, I am thine. And that is what the Christian life is all about. Driving down a country road, I came to a very narrow bridge. In front of the bridge, a sign was posted, yield. Seeing no oncoming cars, I continued across the bridge to my destination. On my way back, I came to the same one-lane bridge now from the other direction. To my surprise, I saw another yield sign posted. Curious, I thought, I'm sure there was one posted on the other side. When I reached the other side of the bridge, I looked back. Sure enough, yield signs had been placed at both ends of the bridge. Drivers from both directions were requested to give right of way. It was a reasonable and gracious way of preventing a head-on collision. When the Bible commands Christians to be subject to one another in Ephesians 5.21, it is simply a reasonable and gracious command to let the other have the right of way and avoid interpersonal head-on collisions. Stephen P. Beck. And I love how that dovetails with what we talked about in Sunday school, about how we need to consider one another. We need to have unity one with another. So we come to our final point of the day, the promise of God. Genesis sixteen eleven through 16 reads, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man, man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spoke unto her, Thou God seeth me. For she said, Have I not also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Bel-Er-Laheroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Berat. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So Hagar is, or so Abram is 86 years old when this happens. And it's interesting to me that she tells, she is told by God that she is to name her son Ishmael. And evidently she goes back to Abram and Sarai and says, this is what the angel of the Lord told me. And we don't read of them doubting her. Instead, what we read is that Abram named the child Ishmael. I love the fact that even though he is a flawed human being like the rest of us, even though he knows that he messed up, he still knows that believing the word of God is important. And uh, of course we know that there are very negative connotations to what is said here. Being a wild man, his hand shall be against every man. 
and every man's hand against him. You know, the the Muslim religion believes that Ishmael was the chosen son of promise. And there's been fighting in the Middle East since Ishmael and Isaac both came on the scene. So that is part of the long-term implications of this. But I think we also see some hope because we see that God, through Abram, is going to bless every nation. Mm-hmm. Let's look at some cross-references here quickly. Genesis 12.3 Genesis 12.3 I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes a promise to us as Gentiles to Abraham that day. Amen. That encourages me. That even when Abraham was wandering the earth looking for God's blessing, there was a blessing there for me and a blessing there for you. Galatians 4.22 and 23. Galatians 4.22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise. So again, this is a great promise that God makes to Hagar, but it's not the promise. Abram at one point will say, well, I know God, you promised that I would have, have an heir, but can't Eliezer, who's my servant, who stands in my sight, be my heir? He's like a son to me. And then God says, no, Abram, your son will come from your loins. Eliezer's not sufficient. And then Ishmael comes along and maybe Ishmael's the one. To me, it kind of reminds me of when David was anointed king. All of his older brothers went before Samuel. And every time, the Bible basically says every time one of his brothers went before Samuel, Samuel said, surely this is the one. And God said, no, this isn't the one. For I do not judge as man judges, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I have refused each of them. And Samuel's standing there, and there's no other people left. He said, is it possible, Jesse, that you have another son? And Jesse says, well, yes, but he's, he's just a shepherd. And Samuel says, well, we're not going to eat until your son David comes here. Because they were going to eat a feast. Can you imagine? The, the burgers are on the grill. They're ready to come off the grill to be eaten. And uh, you're excited about it. And then they say, well, we're not going to eat them until the last one comes. That's kind of the situation they were in. And as soon as David came, God said to Samuel, that's the one. And Samuel anointed David to be king over all of Israel. I'm pretty sure that's why in in 1 Samuel 17, a chapter later, when David comes down to the battlefield, 
his brothers sneer at him because they were probably jealous that he was chosen and they were not. But you notice how many times God chooses the lesser person or the younger person. God loves to use people that the world calls useless. Most of us would have chucked Abraham out after he, after he disobeyed God in this regard and said, God, you need to start over. You need to have a new plan. But God said, no, I'm still going to use Abram. As a matter of fact, I'm going to radically change him in such a way that his name is going to be changed to Abraham. And Sarah's name is going to be changed to Sarah because of the change that God made in them. Let's look at Galatians 3.20 and 21. Galatians 3.20 and 21. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For by... For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. So we have here, Paul is saying that the law is not sufficient for salvation. That was the whole basis of the book of Galatians. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I'll go again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There are some people one of whom used to be a very dear friend. I still love him as a brother. But there are some people who believe that it is necessary for Christians to strive to follow the Old Testament law. But the Bible says here that to do so is to frustrate the grace of God. What does Genesis 15 in the heart of the Old Testament say? Abram believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. We see in chapter 16, there's nothing righteous in Abram himself. When he tried to do it himself, it failed because the righteousness of the law is not accomplished by us. Jesus said that the law would be fulfilled every jot and tittle. How was it? It was, it, it was fulfilled every jot and tittle on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he was the only one who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. And he became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God. Finally, Titus 3, 3 to 7. Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. For we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. 
not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we were one way, we were rebellious, we were against God and everything. And then Jesus shows up. And because of the kindness in his heart, he draws us to himself with the cords of love, as the old song says. And he changes us completely. That is the message of the gospel. I was one way going on the path of sin. Then I met Jesus and I'm completely different. Because of what he does. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There's an old story of a, of a, drunk, of a former drunkard who said, somebody said, do you believe in miracles? And he said, yes, God did a great miracle in my life because he changed whiskey into furniture. Because the point was that this man who had wasted all of his living on whiskey gave it up for the gospel's sake. And then he had money to buy furniture to provide for his family. Because when God changes a man, he does it totally and completely. He doesn't come to make people better. He doesn't come to make bad people good. He comes to make dead people alive. I was once dead in trespasses and sins, but now I'm made alive by the power of the cross of Jesus and by the power of his resurrection because he died and the devil laughed. He thought he won, but God counted to three. And on the third day, Jesus rose triumphant from the grave. And one day he's coming back again to take the ultimate triumph, to win the battle of Armageddon through the word of his mouth and to set at right all of creation. Bible says in Romans, all creation groans for the fulfillment of Christ's coming. And we are so grateful for that. No more ice cold winters in the kingdom of God. Amen. Finally, I just want to end with this quote from Dwight L. Moody who said, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. And that is what we rest on today, that the promises of God are yes and amen. He made promises to Hagar, which he fulfilled. He made promises to Abram, which he fulfilled. Even though Abram tried to mess it up, he still fulfilled his promises to Abram. And if he can fulfill his promises to Hagar and to Abram, he can fulfill his promises to you and me. So when he said to the disciples, this same Jesus, which you see going into heaven, shall come in like manner as you have seen him going into heaven. We can believe that to be true and rejoice each week when we come together for the breaking of bread, knowing that each time we do, we are one step closer to eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its power. And now we just ask that you would um, 
bless us as we go our separate ways and that we would uh, have great fellowship in you this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.